Nigel Hughes is Scientific Director of Real World Data and Real World Evidence of Janssen Clinical Innovation and is co-lead of Big Data for Better Outcomes, flagship consortium, the European Health Data and Evidence Network, or EDEN. Nigel, pleasure to see you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Dwayne. You've obviously been one of the key people working at Janssen and J&J on data. How much of this is hype and how much of this is reality? There is hype, of course. You know, there's a, there's a lot of hype about big data, however you want to define that. It's not a term I like personally. I mean, it's data. But um, when we say big data, what do you, what do you mean from so, your perspective? So big data, if you follow the classic definition, you know, the four or five Vs, so, you know, large volume, uh, high velocity in terms of speed, veracity, veracity variety, and, and so forth. So if we take a step back, we've been working with data that represents real-world observations for hundreds and thousands of years. We've been using RCT data for, what, 60, 70 years? Randomized clinical trial data. Yeah, randomized clinical trial data. So uh, as an industry, you know, that's really only since the 20th century. Um, And it's become kind of the gold standard for evidence. But that's in a highly artificial population, as we know, you know, selected for our pro- protocol to meet the needs of, of proving safety and, of course, efficacy of a compound or intervention you know, for regulatory purposes and so forth. But the key question that everyone wants to know today and clearly in the future more and more is, yeah, but what does that mean in the real world? Right. You know, what's the evidence base that uh, treatment X versus treatment A or, or treatment Y or whatever, or combinations of this or switching of these drugs or other, other interventions going forward in the future, new devices, new technologies and so forth? And what's the evidence base for those going forward versus what happens in a, in a clinical trial, of course, under so-called real-world conditions where actually a very diverse population could start taking a drug or a new intervention? There are costs associated with this. There is service requirements associated with this. You know, the burden of providing care. We all know that's only coming more challenging. You know, aging population, more comorbidity, uh, even climate change. I mean, you know, we are faced with considerable challenges. We have clinical trials that show things work, and we know they work, but then it's how well do they work compared to right. other stuff, and that's the effectiveness. I guess that gets us back to the hype versus reality. Where are we at in using big data to figure that gap out? There is that gap, but there are many gaps. Sure. There's the gap between evidence based from a randomized clinical trial to what happens in the real world, but one of the key problems, of course, is are we asking the right questions? Sure. So we look at getting a new drug to market, for instance, and the pharmaceutical industry has been, say, successful in many ways at doing that over the last decades, and they have obviously increasing challenges. But that only answers a question related to what the regulator needs to know, for instance, and clinicians need to know to prescribe the drug when it becomes authorised and so on. If you look at something, say, like type 2 diabetes, there's a myriad of drugs available. Where are the trials that show... You can start with this drug or that drug, or you can add in or substitute this drug, or you can switch to that as someone's type 2 diabetes maybe develops further and progresses and worsens. If you speak to most diabetologists, they don't know. The real world has become a study, a clinical trial, if you like. Not randomised or anything like that, it's just real world. But people are trying to work out how best to treat with a lack of evidence. And so we'd either answer certain questions but not others, or we don't answer some questions at all. And for clinicians and therefore patients, there's not the evidence base. So how far are we right now from being able to answer some of those questions, harnessing some of the tools that you are working on? We're getting there. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a long road, clearly. We've taken a lot of steps. People get sick of me saying this. Some of the challenges are we are trying to conduct 21st century research, sometimes barely with 20th century tools, let alone 21st century tools. 
looking at the ability to use data at scale, for instance, but also at scale that's not just in a country, but many countries internationally or even globally, and that's coming. And there are a number of initiatives that have been doing that. And we have some challenges because it's socio-technical. There's some technical challenges, but I would suggest that technology is not so much the problem anymore. It's a facilitator, enabler, even a driver. You know, we get new technologies that enable us to do analysis. But actually, a lot of it's socio. You're dealing with people. People, People's concerns about their own use of their data. People's sense of ownership, if I can put it that way, over certain data. Right. If we come to a point in the future where there's kind of an egalitarian layer of data in society that we can all use for research to answer questions, that's probably utopia. Most data scientists would be crying with delight if that was the case. We are nowhere near there yet. Europe should, given its single-payer systems, government-run systems, etc., the idea of social equity in healthcare, which is part of the EU28 social charter, Mm -hmm. we should see some of the best data in the world, longitudinal data, that should be collected as part of these government systems. Does Europe have the best data right now? In pockets, yes. So so the classics are Scandinavia, Estonia. You recently had a uh, aim talking about that from the, the success story of Estonia's e-health platform. UK, of course, you know, the NHS data and so forth as well. But real-world data is not randomized clinical trial data. It sure. is not now, and it likely never will be. Data is collected that we are using from, say, electronic health records directly, not via registries or claims databases, but directly from HRs. They reflect people keeping records in the height of giving care. In the golden hour of resuscitating someone in a trauma unit, I don't think any clinician or healthcare worker is thinking about how much they need to keep the records sure. you know, as, as detailed as possible because it might be used for research. No, they're thinking about saving a patient's life. So... We know all the vagaries of working with our data, you know, inconsistencies, incompleteness, you know, all these challenges, errors, all these things. That being said, is anyone's data best? No. I think the key question is, is it fit for purpose? Does it answer the questions that we have? Some it could, fine. Some data won't answer certain questions. It doesn't mean it's rubbish, just not useful, fit for purpose. So I think we have to take a view of, you know, not necessarily quality of data, but characterizing data that's fit for purpose. There is a lot of data around, but can we speed up time to an answer netflix knows more about me than my general practitioner probably right but comparing industries is probably inappropriate in our media and healthcare netflix but, sees you more often i would assume as well <laughs> i use a lot of netflix <laughs> so um but they know things about me that even i probably don't consciously think about but they can see that in my actions and my behavior we are nowhere near that. that's a pipe dream at the moment in healthcare globally everyone has pockets of good data the ability to link that data is getting better but overall we're all challenged some of the low-hanging questions are answerable like with u.s claims data or nhs data from uk and bridging for other countries and stuff and we've all got very adept at doing that but we have social issues or sociological issues uh policy and regulation issues and various other things that are impacting on our ability to do this and that's more of an issue i think than even maybe the, the so-called quality of the data now j and j has been involved in two of the sort of bellwether projects involving health data emif uh, the imi project emif and now eden what were the goals of emif and how do they compare to what you're trying to accomplish with eden so i heard someone actually only today in a meeting this morning uh, compare emif to eden as kind of its spiritual uh forefather or something okay. like that uh, in some respects it is so so eden grew from emif and emif european medical information framework which ran from 2013 to 2018 as an imi one project 
was tasked with developing a platform, a technology and governance framework for the identification, assessment and then use or reuse of real-world data from diverse data sources across Europe. It's now what we term, in latterly I suppose, fair, you know, findable, accessible, interpretable sure. and, and, and reusable, or interoperable, sorry, and, and reusable. It was kind of ahead of its time in some respects, prior to everyone talking about fair, to get to a position where we could, for instance, catalogue data. Now, where is all this data? Tell me about it. What's, what, how can you characterise it? Is there some metadata that describes it? So EMIF created a catalogue of data sources and then various tools to characterise that data and then facilitate linking in with those data custodians, data sources to enable you to do real-world research at scale and with some speed and create this framework, both technology, governance and then two disease area foci, one in metabolic consequences of obesity, uh, EMIF metabolic, and the second was EMIF Alzheimer's, EMIF AD, and they were kind of, if you like, um, validating projects in two different disease areas of this whole EMIF principle of accessing data and samples. That was a large project. It was uh, 56... Yeah, five years. And- yeah, five and a half years, 56 million euros, so that's matched funding, 50-50 EU and, and the industry in kind, and 57 partners in 14 countries. So it was a, a big project. It's one of the largest the IMI has ever done. That's true, mistaken. yeah. And, in, and originally they looked at it as like a, the spine. So it was skeletal spine was the EMIF platform, and then the vertebrae were successive projects in different disease areas. That didn't progress beyond those two I mentioned. 1st of November last year, Eden. we started Eden, yeah, the European mm-hmm. Health Data and Evidence Network. And that has taken, to a greater degree, a lot of the learning and technology and approaches from EMIF and my own wanting to scale. There's no disease foci projects, you know, like EMIF AD or EMIF uh, metabolic. So there's no clinical area that you're, f- you're drilling into. It's, it's strictly just it's a agnostic. data application. Yeah, okay. it's agnostic. It's about infrastructure. So it's looking at Again, having a, a systematic approach across Europe for real-world research, I, I liken it to having a digital railway network that we are putting the tracks down for, which will facilitate anybody, actually, and that's the important point, anybody running their study trains around these tracks. Mm-hmm. And we want to make data findable, so again, another catalogue. But one of the key differences that we only started doing in Eden, but we're now doing, is harmonising data. It's a Tower of Babel issue. Data is collected in so many different ways, different languages, sure. human and machine uh, different systems and you know, vocabularies and all sorts of things, ontologies. We're using a common data model, the so-called OMOP common data model, the Observational Medical Outcomes uh, Partnership common data model. And we want to map data where it is locally. So it's this so-called federated network. So data stays local. It stays behind the firewall of, say, a hospital or a primary mm-hmm. care network or whoever's involved. So they always retain their scientific independence and their governance of the data. That doesn't change. But we create a mapped, mirrored version of the common data model repetitively around Europe with all these different data sources. And we want to do that to a minimum of 100 million health records, 20% of the European population. Mm-hmm. So a large scale, there's your big data. Sure. And then create this network, this community, of open science community between all these different, part- different uh, partners who have data, researchers, government, academic, industry, payers, whoever, it's open. There's no centralised aspect to this network. And so, for instance, if we, Janssen, or another partner, you know, there's 11 pharma partners, if any of them wanted to conduct research, they could do so. If, if a hospital became a partner and had its data mapped, they could say to other hospitals, why don't we do some comparative benchmarking, you know, look at outcomes in certain diseases, say type 2 diabetics again, sure. as we said that earlier. They could equally do that because, again, it's an open science community. So it's creating sustainable infrastructure. The way we want to support that is 
we want to ensure that we do harmonization in a consistent way. So we're creating kind of an Eden methodology for this mapping to the OMOT Common Data Model. And we just had a call, which just concluded the end of April, for it's open all of April for SMEs, small to medium enterprises, small tech firms, if you like, apply to uh, Eden in the call and to be trained and certified in this mapping process. Mm-hmm. And that's what we will do. And we're going through the selection process in the coming weeks. And uh, we've had a very nice response to the initial pilot from all across Europe. And then later, in about mid-June onwards, we'll have a second call for data partners, hospitals, primary care networks, large-scale databases, regional databases, and so forth. They can apply to Eden, and we will provide a grant, actually from a central fund, 17 million euros as part of the overall 28 million euro budget. And they can receive, as per legal entity, up to 100,000 euros to cover the cost of the mapping to the OMOC Common Data Model. And the way we do it is we kind of speed date the trained certified SME of choice, geographically or otherwise, to that data partner. The grant covers the cost of the SME and the mapping and educational stuff and so on. And then once they're mapped, we can't um, contractually oblige anyone to do anything, but we will hope that these data partners will be partners and they'll they'll work on convergent use cases and grow this open science research community. So a rising tide lifts all boats with a common data model. Yeah. Very nicely put. Thanks. So Eden is governed by the Big Data for Better Outcomes overarching governance of the Innovative Medicines Initiative. Can you quickly describe what Big Data for Better Outcomes is? Yeah, Big Data for Better Outcomes has uh, been going for two to three years now, three years I think now, at least. And it was a recognition, again, within IMI, Innovative Medicines Initiative, and I know you had Pierre Mullian a few months ago, I think, uh, talking about IMI. Public-private partnership, again, it's the largest in the world, at least in healthcare, considerable, considerable uh, activity. But there was a recognition of a number of key issues. Quite a lot of IMI projects focus on R&D, nothing wrong in that. Mm -hmm. But what about clinical practice? What about, again, the value in the real world? Big Data for Better Outcomes, as in the name, was can we look at large-scale projects that work with a lot of data that can show evidence of real-world outcomes, effectively, in this case in different disease areas. And originally, actually, the so-called DDN, Distributed Data Network, which we now call Eden, was supposed to start first. Long story, it didn't. We're starting Mm -hmm. pretty much last. But actually, disease-specific projects were going to then use the platform, Eden, as the basis for their own work. So Eden was, was supposed to feed into correct, all the other correct, network yeah. of IMI overlapping yeah, exactly. projects. So now we kind of do that slightly in reverse, but you know we're in discussions about how, how we will collaborate. But there are now uh, a number of projects have uh, started ahead of Eden. Harmony's one, hemato-oncology, uh, Big Data at Heart, Pioneer in prostate cancer, Roadmap mm. has started and finished in Alzheimer's, so there yeah. may be a Roadmap too, maybe. But all of them were tasked with developing infrastructure to support evidence generation for real-world outcomes in those specific disease areas. And if you like, Eden is the crust on top of all these different pie fillings, which is like saying, well, we can do this at scale across Europe in all different types of diseases. Now, one of the other core partners of Eden is Odyssey, the Observational Health Data Sciences and Informatics Organization. What exactly is Odyssey, and why is Eden partnering with them exclusively? Sure. Well, not necessarily exclusively, but predominantly, maybe. But but, (laughs) (laughs) semantics, semantics, maybe. (laughs) 
<laughs> so originally it was OMOP, the Observational Medical Outcomes Partnership, and they created this common data model. And it was a collaboration between a number of academic centres, principally uh, Columbia in the States, J&J colleagues actually as well, particularly uh, Patrick Ryan and others, uh, who work with George Ripshack in, in, in Columbia, but many others as well who created the common data model. You know, you could map data and so forth. But so then, that's sort of a basic ontology that was established. Yeah, yeah, effectively. Okay. Uh, so it's like a kind of Rosetta Stone, if you like, for all these different, you know, these different evidence bases and, and the way they've all been captured. But that's what, that's what gets you to the first all. That's great. But then you need to be able to analyze that common data model in all the various different, you know, locations because it stays local. It's not centralized. There's no central database or whatever. So tools and the kind of community around that grew into Odyssey, the Observational Data Sciences and Informatics. Odyssey is, is interchangeable with OMOP, but Odyssey has also created a number of the key tools that help you with mapping, semi-automating the process, and also analysis, like Atlas, for instance. You can use Atlas. It's available online. All of these are open source tools, same for Eden, uh, available to, to all with a bona fide research need. You can use Atlas to create your, you know, your research query, your cohort. They've got it right through to even tools like Legend, where that will actually generate a paper for you. Wow. So very sophisticated, all about doing good research, not cutting corners, but at speed, you know, quicker than we do or have done to date. So Odyssey has created a large body already of uh, about 550 million, about half a billion health records worldwide have already mapped. A large body in, in North America, increasingly in Southeast Asia, some in Europe. Eden, if you like, is then accelerating that process in an organised way. Not to say that Odyssey is disorganised, but it's organic. Right. And for instance, in 2016, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, there's a great paper by George Ripshack where they looked at treatment pathways in type one, uh, type two diabetes, sorry, hypertension and uh, and depression. And they just look, you know, first, second line. You get these sunburst, sunburst graphs which show you what was the first line therapy. Right. You know, type two diabetes. Everyone gets metformin. Right. And then after that, chaos. You know, worldwide. And that was done. And I think it was about four countries and about uh, I think it was uh, eleven or fourteen centres. All at scale. It was done in less than six months. Really? Most of the time that was in the six months was and writing would, the paper. And I would assume it's also at a fraction of the cost then as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you're mapped, like the protocol, and get your approvals, put your hand up, you're involved in the research. And that's kind of what we're trying to emulate in, in this process with Eden. But it doesn't mean to say you can't use other analytical tools or other methodologies than Odyssey's itself on top of the OMOC common data model, or that the model itself is not interoperable with other models. Yeah, exactly. That was my next question. Is there any concern about lock-in or things like right, that? Because, right. you know, ICD codes are being used with some of the Epic systems, etc. Yes. in the US. I mean, no, no, no. Yeah. I, th- I think that is a concern for, for many, of course. Uh, nobody really wants to kind of lock-in. And I don't think Pierre mentioned it going back to talk about IMI projects, but predominantly in IMI, it's driven by open, open source. Mm-hmm. And in some respects... Not through necessarily uh, clear choice. Right. That's locked out, actually, a lot of proprietary uh, IP and companies with technology and platforms because they don't see a place for the use of their systems and their technologies because we're all using open source. Right. Um, So, in fact, actually, no, I think we feel this is quite open and um, there isn't this kind of lock-in. And as I say... You can use the OMOP CDM. You don't have to be with Odyssey and using necessarily those tools. You can use other, other tooling, other methodologies. We want to create a open market. IMI is a 5 billion euro roughly program. You also have the EIT. You also yes. have framework programs. I mean, obviously, there are enormous sums being invested here. 
generally the budgets of these programs, these infrastructure programs, run in the tens of millions. Mm-hmm. However, as you and I both know, large-scale healthcare at the national level or at the multiple systems level is often in the billions of dollars or euros. Yes. What do we need to do to actually start implementing this for size where we can actually start using this at a country level? So I think if you're saying, and specifically, I think you're meaning it here in here in Europe. Um, Probably, yeah, in this context. Yeah, I may be, uh, well, not controversial, but a bit outspoken in my, my views on this. Because What are the barriers to that happening, I guess? Because, well, first and foremost, healthcare is a derogation to national countries, unlike other areas in the society for mm-hmm. Europe. And that's a challenge, because that means you definitely get 28 currently, of course, 28 member states, saying that with a British accent at the moment, but mm-hmm. the 28 member states who uh, will all interpret guidance, regulations, and so forth, 28 different ways, or worse, actually, you know, smaller regions in those countries will interpret it, down to the local institutions, they'll interpret it, and so on. GDPR is a good example. Fine regulation, but the interpretation, implementation there, very challenging. It could be a mess. Yeah. So, so, so we get issues like that, for instance, where, and this is a really a, the crux. Then that's actually a more of a political issue: if federal I, versus, you know, versus nation states. If I can jump in as well, if you look at the diagnostics world, I mean, some of the diagnostics decisions are based on, you know, if you're selling diagnostics tools, that's at the hospital by hospital level. I mean, Correct. there is no even yes. oversight really at the national yes. level at all. Well, again, what a surprise! Some of the reason. <laughs> We need evidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, we need we need more and more real world evidence that that shows what does work and what doesn't work based on what the real world is doing, not we th- what we think it's doing or what's done in a artificial study. So you're right. I mean, some decisions are made purely from a procurement point of view for medical devices, as you say, at institution level now. Not even you know a practitioner, even for for pharmaceutical drugs, but also for medical devices and for many other interventions. You know, practitioners generally now don't get decision-making over what's included in a formulary, for instance, or what's reimbursed and all these kind of things. And patients clearly don't either. I think some of the fundamental challenges we are not going to address totally with an Eden. I mean, one of the most fundamental is the misnomer that healthcare is a data-driven industry. It's the least data-driven industry there is. Netflix and the media industry, but many others, oil and gas and so forth. If you speak to many practitioners why they do what they do clinically, it's not often based on the evidence. It's based on experience. And yeah. many people with comorbidities or you know, so-called orphan diseases or rare diseases, you know, they, they have a myriad of misdiagnoses before they get the right diagnosis, and it's expensive and very painful process to go through. So we know healthcare is not perfect. There's an art to this and a science. We should remember that balance, not just the science, of course, because we're all people and it's about people's mm-hmm. health, mental well-being, physical and so forth. But at the end of the day, there's only so much in terms of resources available, of course, and we have to make some rather challenging decisions. And this is, uh, is another problem, is that we tend to view healthcare in a very blinkered way in a silo. Right. Healthcare will be just as drastically, if not more so, affected by climate change as many other industries. But we don't talk about it. Well, what about demographics? I mean, looking at Europe by 2060, there's right. a prediction that Europe, 20% of the population yes. will be over 80 years old. Yeah, well, you look at Japan. Japan is wholesale, is one of the leaders in robotics in the world. Well, why is that? Because it's not just because they want to make more cars. They actually need robots to look after themselves. But before Germany opened up the borders for um, the large immigration influx in 2015, right. Germany's demographics... Uh, were actually worse than Japan's, believe it or not. I yes. think that there was a there was a concerted effort to try and get more people there. 
you're obviously working a lot on data. What's your background? Do you come from a data background? Are you a data scientist? Are no, you a physicist, I, I, an engineer? No, I'm none of those. Um, <laughs> how did you, get, how did you get lumbered with this? I'm diagnosis? dangerously self-taught. So, <laughs> Actually, my initial background uh, was in nursing in the NHS, and then I specialized as a clinical specialist in HIV and viral hepatitis, particularly viral hepatitis and hepatitis C. So I got into that just after. So in 89, hepatitis C was discovered, as it were. Of course, been a lot longer than that but I started working in, in that field after thereafter I left the health service after 16 years in 2000 I'd also worked with a number of NGOs so patient bodies uh, I used to be the uh, chairman and a board member of a now defunct voluntary sector charity called uh, Mainliners which mm-hmm. is the, um, the national charity for people who, who injected and are at risk of HIV or hepatitis in the UK but then I left health service and went to Roche mm-hmm. that was a commercial role in hepatitis C as they were getting back into the game shall we say with pegylated interferon so sure. um, but then I left there and became chief executive of the British Liver Trust which is a national charity for adult liver disease in UK and Ireland based on the work you've been doing on hepatitis C correct correct and quite a curious story to that one actually um, I was invited to dinner to, uh, to meet the board of trustees and I actually wasn't very nice about the charity or what I thought <laughs> were, they ought to be doing or they were not doing and the following morning they said do you want to consider the role of chief executive so quite an interesting interview process but um, anyway I did that for three years we had a lot of awareness raising, political lobbying an awful lot because you know liver disease, very maligned very limited resources, hardly any you know, service provision uh, very challenging. But then I left uh, the British Liver Trust, quite exhausted by that time, and went back into industry. I went to work at Gilead Sciences and was in a commercial role for UK and Ireland. In this case, hepatitis B for a change. Right. Launching an oral antiviral at that time, a defavir. Was there for about three years there, and then I left there, went to Basel to work at uh, Novartis in a global uh, marketing role, commercial right. role for hepatitis C again. And then when I left Novartis, I went to work at the Anson J&J. And that was just over 10 years ago, and that was uh, here in Belgium. And I worked in, as you know, J&J is a myriad of, you know, a kaleidoscope of, of companies. So they'd acquired a company called Tipotec and Verco in 2002. Correct. I yeah. joined in around 20, 2008, and I joined Verco, which was bioinformatic diagnostics. So they were using quite advanced machine learning, what everyone would call now artificial intelligence, intelligence, to do um, diagnostic interpretation for HIV resistance. So you could upload the viral uh, genome, your sequencing, and within moments get a resistance profile downloaded off the web from our servers, but all bioinformatically driven. And then based on that, you could choose your next drug combinations and so on. Because at that time, big problem, of course, with resistance. But then the curious thing is I got more into health IT. We actually acquired an electronic health record system in the US, the EHR, not the company, and we introduced this web based software as a service electronic health record system and under the obama right uh, health reforms and so forth i moved into i think it's about four years ago into my current role do you still think it's possible to move into a, a leading health role in a large company moving into it from an area that didn't start in informatics i mean is that is that still the pathway so not that long ago if you hadn't the term we used to use certainly uk was held the bag if you hadn't worked in sales right you didn't get anywhere in, in the industry because you know everyone went through sales and that was the way up as it were because you'd worked in the, in the field in the territory 
Now, uh, some argue that the sexiest job in the world is data scientist, and the unsexiest job is sales, sales reps, unfortunately, because yeah. we know about the big changes. I don't know if you think you have to be a data scientist or an informatician, but you definitely need to understand how to work with not necessarily just data. You shouldn't have to be a data scientist to work with data, but you ought to be able to, in a situation, work with actionable information from that data that will inform your decisions, strategy, tactics, whatever. We are in a so-called data or information-driven environment more and more in business, not just pharma. And I think increasingly that's been inflected by the type of people that are being employed. One of the things that J&J is currently working on is uh, quite a large R&D portfolio in CAR-T therapies. Okay. But what I find interesting is that J&J is doing most of this R&D not in Europe or the U.S., but in China. And one of the reasons J&J is cited in this is uh, access to data. Mm-hmm. Do you have concerns that Europe, in lesser extent the U.S., is losing competitiveness due to right. access to data? Yeah. I can't comment directly on, on CAR-T and J&J, but to your point, though, about more from a macro level, it's a kind of geopolitical now uh, interesting changes that we're seeing in terms of China and Southeast Asia. Some argue that's a rebalancing in history, by the way. You know, it was mm-hmm. only centuries ago. Southeast Asia was the engine of the world. Well, China's so, been the world leader economy for most of the last 4,000 years. Exactly, exactly. Suppose, yeah. so, so in some respects, recent history is a bit of an, an anomaly. But anyway, <laughs> but Europe and the United States, uh, we, whether, whether it's painful or not, are having to adjust. There's, there's no doubt about that. The world is under pressure, not just any one region. We're all under pressure economically, again, from the environment, again, from a technology point of view. And our societies are going through quite dramatic change. We know this, you know, this so-called you know, next industrial revolution and so forth. In some respects, in my most immediate domain, which is in real-world data, if you're working real-world data, you are collaborating, if you're doing it right. You know, you cannot do this on your own. I mean, from an industry point of view, this isn't our data. This is Correct. someone generated by a patient or a physician or an institution or whatever. It sits outside of the industry. So why would anyone want to work with us and use their data? So this whole kind of quid pro quo, this kind of collaborative approach, it has to be the norm. And I think if you scale that up, that has to be the same, whether you're talking about Europe, United States, China, and so forth. I admittedly maybe beyond the foray of this podcast, there are some challenges which are actually sociological but mainly also political. There isn't quite the equivalent, shall we say, of a Chinese GDPR (laughs) when it comes to data. And you'd argue Europe has some of the most more restrictive now, uh, and rightfully so in some respects, uh, regulation around use of data. This is a challenge, and it's not something that's easily solvable, clearly. We have to really think long and hard about the repercussions, because what we're seeing in, from a technological point of view, which is inclusive of data, not just in healthcare, but generally in society, is unintended consequences and perverse incentives. Yeah. And some of this so-called AI, but machine learning and so forth, is skewed, it's biased. It's not based on great representative d- training data and so forth. But meanwhile, we ought to be humble, because the West, for quite some time, has always thought we're the, we're the premier division here. Yeah. And then we find, shockingly, that research being conducted in Chinese journals in China, in Chinese, that we didn't see in in the Western journals, predating what we'd done, and was clearly pointing to very similar outcomes and findings. But it is truly about being global and globalization. There's a wonderful satirist, A. Whitney Brown, who wrote a book called The Big Picture about 25, 30 years ago. And one of the quotes is, you know, China has a billion people. So even if you're a one in a million guy, there's a thousand guys just like yes. you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and they can do things at massively scale. And if they decide to do X, Y, Z, they generally do it. So yeah. 
I think we have to have a balance between being humble and willing to learn from wherever that is in the world, maybe being able to replicate it in our own, own populations and so forth. But we also need to have some safeguards and we have to have some sanctity, if you like, over what we consider to be very clear principles. And I think that's the challenge. On these clear principles and the challenges that we have for access to data when we're looking at the global environment for these evidentiary approaches, and China's doing really well, if you could, what change would you make in Europe to help facilitate <laughs> this being more logical and robust? Okay. Well, first and foremost, I would want a way of championing healthcare at a European level. And I don't necessarily mean an individual, for instance, you know, like at the top of the uh, top of the food chain, as it were. But I think this derogation of healthcare to a national level, whether it's popular or not, with national governments, is causing us real problems if we're really trying to see this at a European level. Otherwise, we have to be remarkably porous between borders, you know, the digital borders, if you like, and having a so-called digital you know, single market and so forth. I mean, we have had successes on a small scale, roaming charges, you know, mobile telephony and so forth. Great. I can roam anywhere now. It doesn't cost me any more than it does at the home country. Unless you go to Switzerland. Unless you go to Switzerland. <laughs> Fair enough. And maybe the UK after Brexit, but we'll, we'll see. To be decided. To be yeah. decided. But, but, you know, we shouldn't belittle that. I use that as an example. We shouldn't belittle that because, you know, looking at the web, it's, it's not called the World Wide Web for good reason. The fact that you cross a border and you can't use your phone is actually a great analogue for some of the challenges we see already in healthcare data and, and providing health care either at a personal and local level or at scale you yourself Duane have discussed this many many occasions as well where are we best placed to put a limited pot of money R&D you've already mentioned China you've already mentioned yeah. US I know your view on you know US is very much at the moment dominating top, top of the league table dominating R&D yeah and, yeah. and they recently also is one of the most seen as one of the most competitive nations in the world I must admit in the top 10 of those I think 6 were European countries mm -hmm. but they weren't number 1 fair yeah. enough but that's the thing. There you go. You've got six European countries that are considered the top 10 competitive, but they're individual countries. Right. And they, I mean, you know, Denmark, for instance, great country, but you know, it's a fraction of the population of the United right. States. So we can only, again, work best if we collaborate and again at scale. And I think, again, this is counter to what a lot of the populist concerns there are at the moment about globalization and so forth. We will only progress as a species. We are now in the smallest world in our history, you know, from a geopolitical and communications and transport and God knows what else perspective. So we have to think global. We have to think as a common species because many of the challenges we're facing, whether it's healthcare or anything else, are global of nature now. And it's kind of strange that we are rightfully trying to treat and understand type 2 diabetes. I keep using that example, but just as one, but, you know, Crohn's or whatever. But how much difference is that in the primary care practice in Shanghai, Paris, New York, and so on. So we need to think of this at scale and large scale, and that's where you get lots of data and all sorts of things, and we need to have the systems in place and do that. But the more we think parochial and small, we are not going to solve this. It's almost like having a, a global Manhattan project, like mm -hmm. in, in the war, unfortunately, for, for the atomic bomb. But we need that kind of equivalent. I mean, like Alzheimer's. The, a few hundred, I think, is it now? A couple of hundred? 256, yeah. 257 failures in a row. Yeah, not great. Exponential can't. loss of cash flow and, and shareholder value. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, not only that, we aren't solving a dreadful disease. No. We are only going to crack that at scale together large scale so this parochialism is a real challenge and we need to address this head on this is kind of local ownership kind of concern is this something that's just not really helping
Nigel, it's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, much for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it very much. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Cheers.